Hi, everybody, and thanks for taking time out of your schedule today to listen in on our Hilco Global Smarter Perspective podcast. As return listeners know, I'm your host, Steve Katz. And if this is your first time joining us, welcome. We're really glad you could tune in. We've got a great program for you today. We're going to be visiting again with our friend Sandy Mickus of Hilco Evaluation Services to talk more about wine, one of my favorite topics, and I'm sure a lot of people's favorite topic out there. This time it's cased wine that we're going to be talking about, and we'll be digging into some of the most important things that lenders should know in terms of evaluating prospective borrowers or existing portfolio accounts that are involved in the California cased wine industry. Sandy's Evaluation Director at Hilco Evaluation Services and has praised numerous businesses in many areas of the wine industry, including traditional and state wineries throughout California and Washington State, as well as e-commerce retailers purchasing and bottling both foreign and domestic wines. So, Sandy, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be back. Well, we're glad to have you on again. It was a great discussion last time. Uh, maybe you could just get us rolling by providing a bit of a background on when we what we talk about when we're talking about cased wine specifically. Sure, yeah, I'm happy to do that. So cased wine is essentially finished goods or what a normal lender would consider finished goods where it's wine that has been bottled, labeled, and is ready to sell. And it's generally referred to as cased goods because in the industry as a whole, they use a nine liter equivalent as a standard unit of measure. So people who drink a lot of wine will know that it can come in various size bottles, 750 milliliter being the most standard size, but yet it also comes in larger sizes and smaller sizes. So essentially a standard case would be 12, 750 milliliter bottles, also referred to as the nine liter equivalent. And although not all wine is sold in 750 milliliter bottles, it would generally always be converted to a nine liter equivalent for the purpose of reporting their inventory um, so that there's a standard by which to measure the sales as well. Okay, got it. So then when we're talking about cased wine, we're really talking about essentially finished bottled wine that's sold through a range of channels. Is Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right, Steve. The channels that the wine is sold through is going to be determined based on the licensing that the winery holds. So you'll find distribution to retail stores, online e-commerce channels if the company has their own website, tasting rooms or wine clubs, traditional distributors, um, and restaurants and bars. Now, Some wineries are going to have licensing to sell directly to restaurants and bars where others won't, and they can only sell through distributors. So the distribution channels are determined by each winery individually based on the licensing. And distribution has shifted a little bit Um, during COVID. We saw a definite shift given that the on-premise chains were closed, restaurants, restaurants, tasting rooms, you know, bars, those those channels, which are referred to as on-premise, were closed down during COVID. And we saw a shift towards more retail sales, which actually was more favorable for the lower-end wines. Uh, higher-end wines are generally consumed 
in restaurants or at events, weddings, bigger functions, we don't see as much consumption in the home of higher-end wines. So many wineries saw their higher-end brands struggling where their lower-end brands were selling much more quickly and oftentimes, you know, were selling through at rates that they had not seen and sometimes couldn't keep up with. So now that the, you know, everything's opened back up again, the COVID pandemic is over, we're seeing the shift come back somewhat for the higher end wines, but really not stabilizing to where it used to be. And the lower end wines are still continuing to sell through at higher rates than pre-COVID. So it's interesting to see the dynamic. And I know there are a lot of publications that expect that that's going to continue to balance itself out over the next year as the new vintages start coming through. Um, so we'll wait and see, but there's definitely been a shift toward the lower end wines and that's caused a little bit of an oversupply in some of the higher end case goods. Um, on the other hand, there has been a shortage in certain areas of grape production. So it is sort of balancing itself out, it seems, um, overall in the marketplace. Yeah, interesting that it would go in that direction. So how does how does wine these days stack up in the hierarchy of preference for most people as compared with other alcoholic beverages these days? Because I feel like I'm, you know, when I'm out um at a restaurant, I'm I'm not really out at bars much anymore. When I'm out at dinner, um, you know, I see a lot of people with mixed drinks or hard alcohol. Uh, maybe more than maybe more than I've seen. It's just anecdotal, but I'm just wondering, you know, how does how is wine fitting into the overall mix of what's being consumed these days? Well, it's very interesting because we do see the spirits category increasing, um, and wine. It, when we look at the consumers for wine, so baby boomers, which would be an age range of 58 to 76, roughly, are the top consumers. Um, however, their spending isn't increasing the way that, you know, the wine industry would like it to be. So we see the newer generation coming in and not spending as much on wine. They're more apt to buy the lower end wines versus the higher end wines, or they're shifting more to spirits. Um, so we definitely are seeing that the younger generation is not drinking as much wine at, at their current age as the older generation is now or was when they were younger, uh, if that makes sense. So it, it's definitely a shift and wine is not as popular as it was previously, although the numbers are still increasing, when we see the rate of growth in the wine industry, it is still growing. Even when we look at consumption, uh, which was estimated at 3.18 gallons per person in 2021, which is up from 2.72 gallons in 2011. So we've seen that trend in the last 10 years. However, we don't expect that type of trend over the next 10 years 
to increase at that rate. It seems like that's just not the case. Now, you never know. I mean, things come and go, right? So wine seems to be a staple, whereas some of the spirits and I would say more trendy drinks, uh, you know, often come and go. We saw that with the seltzers. They became very, very popular for a while, and now they're sort of fading off. So it'll be interesting to see that going forward. Yeah, I think that's very true. They they do tend to be more trendy and particularly, you know, for wine enthusiasts, they, they seem to be more life lifelong enthusiasts than someone who kind of moves from the, the most, the latest spirit to the, to the, uh, the, the newest, latest spirit, I suppose. But um, that's very interesting. And, And I would think though, given what you just explained, the industry would be relatively uh, concerned and on, on top of the situation, strategizing to minimize any potential effects of a further reduction moving ahead. Is is that the case, or you know, what's the what's the general attitude? Yes, there? We, we see uh, some of the bigger brand name wineries, you know, marketing more to the younger generations with social media and things like that, and also marketing more heavily the lower price point wines. And I think that's where the the compromise is going to be with the wineries. Obviously, they'd like to produce less high-end wine, but on a go-forward basis, I think they've come to realize a lot of them that more lower-priced wine is probably the route that's going to be taken, you know, over the next, I would say 10 years. I'm just you know, that's my opinion. And, you know, that's not any sort of a fact, but um, just from what I've seen and talking to everybody in the marketplace, that seems to be the consensus. Uh, We see wines like rosés being much more popular now than even they were 10 years ago. Um, And also sparkling wines are much more popular now. So what the wineries are doing is just shifting their production to what the consumers want and a high-end red wine, you know, Cabernet that traditionally was bringing in the most money, you know, may not be the case going forward and they're going to have to adjust accordingly. Yeah. I mean, if you can balance that out with a, you know, higher frequency of consumption and people are drinking more, you know, more rosé than they would otherwise, and that compensates for, uh, the cost differential between what used to sell. I think that, that that's part of the strategy, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah. And what about, uh, I know you wanted to talk about um, really what lenders should be focusing on with uh, potential uh, borrowers uh, or existing borrowers, borrowers that they're reviewing in terms of diligence. Do you have some thoughts uh, that we can pass along to lenders on, on diligence focus in the coming six to 12 months? Yes, I absolutely do. And I think what's important for lenders to understand is the wine industry. And when we look at wine as a finished product, bottled, finished, you know, ready to sell, it's, it's not the traditional type of inventory that they may be used to looking at um, from an analysis standpoint and a lending perspective. So I think the biggest difference uh, 
that I think should be understood is when we do an appraisal of finished wine, we don't do a skew level analysis that would traditionally be done in most appraisals. And the reason that we don't do that is because every time a wine comes out for a vintage year, it will be assigned a skew number by the winery. So if you have a 2020 uh, rosé, it's going to have a skew number. Then the 2021 comes out, it's going to have a different skew number because they have to track their sales at the skew level. However, in a traditional skew level analysis, we would look at historic sales of each skew in the inventory and we would determine the value to some degree based on the historic sales volume. Well, oftentimes wineries will put out a, say a 2019 Cabernet, they will produce it but they may not offer it even for sale for two years. They will hold it in the bottle and let it continue to age in the bottle before they offer it for sale. And in the meantime, they're selling through their prior vintage year Cabernet. So when we look at wine, we have to understand that it's not going to be a skew level analysis that's going to drive the value. What we're going to look at is most wineries will have what they call a label level or a hierarchy where we can identify, okay, this label is a Cabernet or a Merlot that's their main brand product line. And so every year they're going to have a new vintage skew under that label. And so what we do is we generally we'll roll up the inventory at, to the label level uh, or whatever the winery calls it. And then we will do some analysis of the historic sales at that level. And it's not uncommon for a winery, a high-end winery, to have two to three years worth of finished goods, which I think many lenders would find alarming uh, because you know most companies shouldn't have that much inventory. But under the circumstances and the way the business model is with aging high-end wine in a bottle for up to a year or two, it's reasonable to see that. And I think that's something that lenders have to get comfortable with um, because if they can't get comfortable with it, then, you know, it may not, it may not be a good fit for them. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a little bit counterintuitive, right? To the typical inventory thought process, retail or something else. But yeah, very, very interesting. And we also see that in what we call library wine. So library wine, oftentimes wineries will create their higher end wines, and then they will withhold some of it and will not sell it. So, you know, say they have a hundred cases left of the 2017 Cabernet they will hold back a hundred cases and then just start selling the 2018 next. And they create what we call a wine library. And this is only done. I think it's important to understand this is only done on higher end, typically red wines um, that generally will continue to improve with age. And it's a fine line of trying to understand what is wine that is slow moving and just isn't selling well versus what is 
true library wine that the company purposely did not sell through. And sometimes that can get a little blurred. Uh, and so we have to be very careful with that. And you know, we have to really work with the winery to understand their procedures on things like that. But again, oftentimes with some of the higher end brands with their library wine, we find those have the highest value because their cost basis, you know, some of these go back to the 80s, even maybe the 70s. And the cost basis back then was much lower. And so when you look at the margin of what you could sell it for now versus that cost, it's much, much higher than, you know, even what you would get now with current wines. So we believe in certain circumstances, if those wineries were to offer their libraries for sale, they would sell, you know, quickly, obviously, depending on the brand and the type and and a lot of other circumstances, but there are definitely many wineries out there with library wines that, you know, could get a pretty good return in a liquidation. And so it's, it's complex because most lenders, again, are not used to seeing something so old have such a high value, which happens oftentimes in our appraisals. So it's, it's another anomaly that we really only see in wine to some extent we you know we would see it in bourbon or other types of spirits but really wine at the this age you know 20 to 30 years is is really the main one so that's another thing uh in addition to that there's definitely some seasonality with wineries that i think lenders need to understand they do a harvest in the fall they're going to do their crush and fermentation and barreling so they're going to have a big influx of bulk wine in, you know, the third and fourth quarter. And then what they do is they do a big bottling. Typically, when you have a real high-end seasonal winery, they're going to do their bottling in the spring to free up space for that fall harvest. So in the spring, you're going to see a significant increase in finished goods. Obviously, the bulk wine is going to decrease. The, the cased wine or the finished goods are going to increase significantly. So you're going to have to anticipate that with advance rates um, and things like that, because that's a pretty traditional cycle that wineries use. Now, some of the really big wineries, they're in production, you know, year round. And so you aren't going to see, you'll still see it at the harvest time because you can't get around that. But you won't see it as much in the bottling because many of those uh, really large wineries are bottling year round. Um, but again, it's something that the lender needs to anticipate sometimes uh, so that they're prepared for that and don't get caught in any type of an over advanced situation when the product is moving from bulk to finished or, you know, vice versa, or, you know, or when you see that. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So anything else on the, on the list of diligence? The only other thing I would um, really suggest that lenders pay close attention to is the excise tax. And uh, we've seen circumstances where, you know, if you don't have the right people in place to ensure that your excise tax is being paid, I've seen federal tax liens for many millions of dollars um, when the taxes aren't being paid timely and properly. So, that's something that we always advise lenders about is um, ensuring that the excise tax is paid and we account for that in the liquidation scenario that we provide. 
Um, oftentimes, wineries will use third parties to do that for them because those are the experts, which you know we find to be beneficial. Um, but that's really the main. Those are the main concerns I would say for the lender to understand. Yeah, well, that, that's that's terrific. And I just while you're talking, I was thinking a little bit more about how to how to equate that the library wines to something that lenders might be more familiar with. And to me, it seems it's a little bit like intellectual property, right? If a company has some, you know, patents or um, historically significant photos in its archives, and they're just, they're kind of just sitting there and, but uh, on liquidation, those things can be worth a lot of money. It's just that nobody really ever thinks about it or doesn't really focus on that stuff. So maybe that's another way for lenders to, to get their hands around, um, you know, some of these different aging inventory type issues as they think about the industry. So Sandy, thanks. Uh, that's fantastic. Um, we appreciate you sharing all the info. And if uh, listeners do have questions, uh, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, well, thanks for having me back. Um, listeners can feel free to reach out to me via email at smickus at Hillco Global. It's S-M-I-C-K-A-S at hillcoglobal.com or my cell phone is 626-622-3237. And of course, I can also be reached uh, on LinkedIn. All right, great. So can I. So we can we can talk to each other there and <laughs> listeners can get a hold of us also. So listen, thanks again, Sandy and listeners. As always, we hope that this Smarter Perspective podcast provided you with at least one key takeaway that you can put to good use in your business or share with a colleague or client to help make them that much more successful moving forward as well. And remember, you can always check out more great podcasts and articles featuring timely insights from Hilco experts like Sandy at hilcoglobal.com forward slash smarter dash perspectives. Until next time, for Hilco Global, I'm Steve Katz.